0: Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church, North Adelaide. You can find more great things like this at citylightchurch slash North Adelaide. Psalm 139 O oh Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you knew it altogether. You hem me in, behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Oh, where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the utmost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, I hate them with complete hatred, and I count them as my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there would be any grievous ways in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Amen. Um, and the second reading is from the New Testament, John 1, one through five. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made and without him was not anything made that was with, was made. In him was life, and the light was life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it.
1: Thank you. Good morning, everyone, sisters and brothers. It's great to be here. And um, if you um want to turn to Psalm 139, we will be we will be looking at that. So this, I think, is the first of a short series of Songs of the Psalms, I think we're calling it or something like that, where we're going to be enjoying Psalms that mean a lot to people, um, just as they have meant a lot to God's people throughout, you know, the ages Uh, and, you know, and meant a lot to Jesus and probably Jesus would have sung some of these Psalms himself in different circumstances and I'm looking at Psalm 139 not only because it is a wonderful psalm as we shall see but it means something very special, very personal to me and it's slightly strange to be preaching about a personal favorite because I've spent 25 years avoiding preaching about my favorites because I've seen uh, one or two preachers who you know when they stand up what they're going to say, because they're going to bang on about, you know, they're going to get on their hobby horse and ride it, aren't they, for 20 or 30 minutes. So I thought, no, I'll always try and, uh, you know, read what the Scripture is saying and preach that, even if I find it difficult to understand. So let's get into this psalm. So in the psalm, we hear David um, who, who often has, has issues and problems when he's writing psalms and expresses himself in song or, or in poetry to God. And there are four sections to this psalm, as we've seen. So the first six verses describe the insight that God has into David and into each one of us, by extension. And then verses 7 to 12 describe the oversight that God has over our, you know, over the whole world, the whole of creation. And then verses 13 to 18 describe the foresight that God has, what he sees to be coming from, from you know, conception, and a long way before conception, as we will see, right up until death. So he's got our, as the, uh, as the song says, he's got our, our whole lives in his hand, or our whole world in his hand. And then finally, the verses 19 to 24 describe the psalmists, describe David's devotion to God in a particular way, as we'll see. So let's look at verses 1 to 6. So David admits that everything he does, whether he sits down, stands up, whether he's coming into the house or going out, everything he does God can see. And even David's own thoughts are known intimately by Yahweh. And verse 5 is interesting. He says, hold on, I have to peek over my glasses, you hem me in behind and before, you have laid your hand upon me. Now, apparently this can mean cornered or besieged or it can mean guarded or circled for protection Uh, so that makes me think of the sheep in the fold so you have a circular fold either a wall or thorn bushes and the shepherd leads all the sheep into the fold and then the shepherd sits at the entrance so the silly sheep can't wander off and the predators can't get in so that's, that's what I'm thinking of and I think David is, is seeing it as a positive thing because then the, the next verse he says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. So let's look at verse 2 and the God who sees all. And now David reflects on his inability to escape from God's presence. Where can I go and not be found by you? not to height, not to depths. I think the translation Ruth, Lee, Ruth used said she also, that means depths or grave. East or west, there's nowhere to hide. And uh, I can certainly relate to, you know, if you settle on the far side of the sea. So we have got our certificate now. We are Aussies, so you, you can't get rid of us. But uh, when David was talking about the far side of the sea, maybe he meant you know, the far side of the Red Sea or the Salt Sea or the Mediterranean, maybe probably not even the Mediterranean. His world was very small. But uh, as we know, we can, we can travel all around the world and God is there. And I can vouch for that personally, yes. He's over there and he's over here. And again, verses, verse 11 is interesting. Does this mean that David sometimes wants darkness? In order to escape the presence of God? Um, Does he have a frustration or a, a guilt that he wants to hide from God? Maybe we all do. Or is it a reflection that the King of Israel has been fighting amongst the darkness of the surrounding nations who do not acknowledge God? But yet he is always safe, that he is or sorry, he is always confident that he is safe in the hands of God wherever he is. And whichever way you read it, well, read it both ways. The clue again, verse 10, is that this is a positive thing that God sees all. We have a God who can, you know, create light out of darkness and who can call darkness light. And nowhere is beyond his comfort and care. And it's, a terrific picture, isn't it? An astonishing picture of God seeing all, knowing all, and being interested in one individual to be with him and accompany him and pursue him wherever he goes. So let's look at verse 3 now. So the psalmist turns his thoughts to God as creator. And David says, even in the womb, he knows that he is seen and known by God. You created my inmost inmost being. And David knows that all his future is in the Lord's hands. And he praises God for his unbelievable thoughts, or for God's unbelievable thoughts and knowledge of David, in verses 17 and 18. And all the detail of David, everything about him, His height, his weight, his fear of the dark, um, things that happened to him in childhood, teenage traumas, his weaknesses, his strengths, his relationships, his failings, which there were many. Every imaginable imaginable detail of every person. And uh, I'm told that um, more than 100 billion people have existed on earth. And God knows every detail of every one of them. Yes, truly, this knowledge is too wonderful for me. And he knows us better than we know ourselves. So if you've ever had a revelation about something about ourselves, usually not all that flattering. If we've, um, if we've been maintaining an illusion about ourselves and how we behave and our character, well, God knew it anyway. And if we come to him, he will help us to discover these things. And then in the fourth verse, the psalm takes a turn, and to modern ears, I guess this would be some difficult verses, as David talks about his hatred of his enemies and his hatred of the wicked. And we're reminded there are people who do rage against this God who knows and sees and created everything. And we're reminded that a choice needs to be made. Are we for or against God? And I suppose one of the reasons that these things are difficult for us today is today we practice our religion and we have relatively little power. We might have influence, but we have relatively little power. And the power of the state is separate from our religion. Okay? So that separation was invented by Jesus. Let's not forget when he said, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and unto God what is God's. So we are used to a Western world where religion and the state are separate things and and can actually be in conflict sometimes. But of course in David's time and in other religions, power and religion go hand in hand. You know, the head man, and it usually was a man, was, you know, the head of the state religion, uh, you know, a bit more forcefully. You know, the queen might come on at Christmas and say, you know, Jesus is my saviour. Great stuff you, imagine. Um, but she doesn't really have any power, to be honest, over the... I imagine she could give you a good grilling if you were, you know, if you were displeased, Her Majesty, but... Um, but she doesn't really have any power, either over the state or over religion. And certainly nobody is forced to worship Christ in the UK or the Commonwealth, uh, or in any country as far as I know, but who, who knows? There may always be exceptions. So we have a different view of power and God than the ancient peoples for whom there would be no other way, and still for some other religions, That's the way it is. And maybe I suppose that's why some other nations fear Christianity, don't they? Some regimes think that they've got to destroy or put aside Christianity because they are afraid, Um, which is strange in a way because Christians make good citizens, I would have thought, you know. You know, we don't cause trouble, uh, we, we obey, generally speaking but that's not the way some regimes see it. So there's a breakdown of the psalm. And there's a couple of things I wanted to say about having gone through the psalm. And we can, um, it, it may, it seems like David has been accused of infidelity to God or, or not, you know, being a good king and is the tone that's here. So, so, the, uh, so the books tell us. And we can understand if David's been accused of infidelity to God, because he's got many enemies, he's a powerful man, um, he's killed a lot of people over the years, he's made some enemies. And also, of course, David has done bad things. He, for example, he stole a man's wife, raped her, then murdered the husband when she became pregnant in order to cover it up. So. You know, he's gone out there and done some really bad things, uh, you know, and lots more than that. And no doubt this scandalous tale was embroidered a bit by the gossip of jealous people, uh, which was the social media of that time and still is today. And it's also worth noting that David gets treated as an individual in the New Testament. You can always tell in a story if somebody is significant, they get named. If they're just a sort of minor player, they don't get named. They're just a a servant, a woman, a child. So they're low down in the hierarchy, in the pecking order. A slave. But David is named because he's a major player. He's a king chosen by God. So his personal story is important and becomes an example for us all. More on that later. Okay. Okay. That's the, um, you know, I've done the biblical stuff. We've gone through all of the psalm, uh, which is a fantastic psalm. But I have to confess to you, the reason that the psalm is my personal favourite is, is verse 14, or just a small part of, of verse 14. So Liz is embarrassed now. I don't know why, because you did all the work, darling. <laughs> so this is our daughter, Rachel. This is her birth announcement. And on it we had that verse. And uh, as you can see, she was uh, sleeping peacefully there. And uh, Rachel's 25 now, so I know how long I've been preaching because I took her with me on my first gig. She was in the, you know, she was in the car seat that you because she was really weeny, And she slept through the whole thing. Um, which was a, you know, sleeping through what dad says is a skill that she rediscovered later as a teenager and possibly still practices today. But anyway, moving on. So this is my, this is the reason why this is my favorite psalm. And not because of the personal reasons that I've just said to you. Um, But this verse has come to represent something that um, means a lot to me. Uh, Because it captures my journey from atheism to faith. You see, I believed in evolution and the Big Bang Theory. Uh, Yes, the the theory, but I also like the series. Um, So I believed in those before I believed in God. But I was fascinated by the beauty and complexity of the universe. Excuse me, I'm just getting a bit dry. But I was fascinated by the, the, the beauty of the universe, the incredible, you know, awesomeness of it all. And later on, by the how unlikely our universe is. Because it's so perfectly balanced. Uh, to such a fine degree that the, you know, the odds of it coming about being balanced spontaneously are, you know, billions and billions to one. But I wasn't aware of that back then. And eventually, my growing awareness of how complex the universe was, because I'd been taught science at school, overcame my objection to God just existing. Because I thought, well, how can God just exist? How can that happen? But then I thought, well, how can the universe just exist? And it does. So that kind of took away my objections to God existing. And once I, that had opened my mind, then I was able to explore and eventually find God. And one of the things I wanted to explore here, in verse 15, the Psalmist says that we are formed from the depths of the earth, because, and that's true because that's where our substance came from. Of course, our mothers ate plants and animals, and the, plants, the animals that she ate also ate plants so all of that stuff that we, are, we were made of as babies, well, and since then, all came ultimately from plants who got their sustenance out of the earth. So the psalmist is quite right to say that we come out of the earth. But the story of our creation is so much bigger than that because the very stuff that we are made of didn't come, wasn't formed in the earth. It was formed elsewhere, and then the earth formed With that stuff. So, if we look at what we're made of, there we go. So, about 10% of us is hydrogen atoms, and they all date back to the moment of creation. So, if you feel a bit creaky in the morning, just remember that 10% of you is over 13,000 million years old. So, you know, you can be forgiven for being a bit, you know, a bit jaded now and again. And then just under a fifth of us is carbon, okay? And most of that came from small stars dying, which sounds rather sad, doesn't it? But, you know, if it wasn't for that, we wouldn't exist. And then actually, almost two-thirds of us is oxygen atoms. And that oxygen wasn't made in a small star dying, it was made in the shockwave of a massive star exploding, a supernova. So that's an extraordinary thought. Two-thirds of you was made in a shockwave when a massive star blew up. And, you know, there's other stuff. There's, there's nitrogen and calcium in our bones, you know. There's phosphorus, so that's about 6% of us. And then less than 1%, there's potassium and sulfur and sodium and chlorine and magnesium. And we need all of these things, these are essential. We would die without them. And they were all made by stars dying in different ways. And what's interesting actually, if we can move on to the next slide. What actually killed those stars was making iron. And we need iron, it's what makes our blood red. And it's what enables our blood to transport oxygen around our bodies, the haemoglobin. So, without the iron, we would suffocate. Uh, And as as I say, what makes the blood red? I mean, the, the communion wine today is a bit pale, which has been noted. So, maybe, you know, the grape juice was a bit anemic. It's not enough iron in the grape juice, so my apologies for that. But it's interesting, isn't it? The star burns for millions of years, but once it starts burning iron and making iron, it's only got one day to live. It does one, about one day making iron, and then it blows itself to pieces, which is a strange thought, isn't it? that's, that's what's flowing around in our blood is what killed a star. And then finally, there's two, two more elements. There's iodine, and I have to work at this, molybdenum, or molybdenum is easy to say. Molybdenum is easier to say, but it's not right. Uh, So, molybdenum and iodine, of course we we process iodine in the um, thyroid, don't we? I'm looking at Ruth, because she, yeah. good. We've got some doctors in here, which is always good. So those, which again are essential, we would die without them, they didn't come from a single dying star. They came from a much stranger source. So when a star bigger than ten times the size of our star, the Sun, when a big star dies, it explodes into a supernova, and it leaves behind a collapsed core, which is called a neutron star. Now, pay attention. I know this is a bit dry, but this is important. Now, a neutron star is a strange thing. Everything that you and I have ever seen, you know, the, the wood, the walls, the earth, Every object, everything we've seen in our lives is mostly, the atoms are mostly made of empty space. Okay, so you and I are mostly made of empty space. And what we, what we think of as solid, that's not solid matter, that's electric force. And what we see as solid, well, that's just the photons reflecting off the electric force. So we are, we are 99% empty space, which is a really strange thought, isn't it? So everything we've ever known is like that. But a neutron star is not like that. It's so dense that it has no gaps. It's not 99% empty space, it's 100% solid. And uh, it's so dense that it weighs more than our sun, probably 50% more than our star, but it would fit between here and Henley Beach. Okay which would be a bad thing, because if it was here, it it would suck us all in within a fraction of a second and we'd be crushed. So it's a good job we've never met a neutron star, but we need them. Because that iron and molybdenum was not made by one neutron star, but by two neutron stars colliding. And I don't know if this GIF is going to work. Do you have to click on it? No? (laughs) never mind, imagine the stars circling each other and getting closer and closer and then going kaboom in style, okay? So that's what was required in order to make a couple of the things that we need to live. So God really did go to town, didn't he, making us. We are truly, fearfully and wonderfully made. Now, the so what test. You probably sat there thinking, Simon, why are you telling me all this stuff? We're in church on a Sunday. What's this got to do with Jesus? Well, John, Jesus' favorite disciple, thought that creation was so important that he started his gospel by reminding us that Jesus was one with the creator at the moment of creation all that time ago. So that's the perspective that John wants us to have. And another reason I want to, I'm telling you all of this stuff is in our walk as Christians we will encounter people who dismiss the possibility of God like, one, like I once did, and far more people who kind of believe in God but just pay God no attention except in emergencies. It's a saying that there are no atheists in a lifeboat. And I've heard people say that they only believe that what they can see. I only believe in, in what's real, what I can see. You think, okay, do you know that what's real is actually 99 or more percent empty space and what you're seeing is not solid at all, it's electric force? Maybe if they knew that, they wouldn't be so confident that they, that they knew it all and there was nothing else to learn. So I understand if they understand what real really is. And there's also those who try and um, tell us that science and religion are enemies. And I remember seeing a Christian on TV and I think she was upset because somebody had asked her to wear a mask and she refused. And she was screaming at this person, I don't believe your science because I believe in my God. And I remember thinking at the time, sister, I don't think you've thought this through. If we believe there is only one God who is the creator, then everything is, that he's created comes from God. And he made the laws of physics and he made the forces that bind our universe together and he set in train all these events, you know, stars growing and burning and dying and blowing up in order to make us. So any study of science, any study of the creation, can only occur because God made scientists to study the creation that he made. So we have nothing to fear from this. We have nothing to fear from this. Because after all, elsewhere the psalmist says in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech, night after night they reveal knowledge. And some atheists have tried to claim that science is on their side or that science proves that God doesn't exist. And this is rubbish, okay? So the scientific method involves coming up with a hypothesis, an idea of how things work based on observations, then constructing an experiment to confirm or disprove these ideas. And there is no experiment to prove or disprove the divine, the presence of the Almighty. There isn't one. So science has nothing to say about the existence of God. It's not a scientific question. So if someone says to you that science shows there is no God, then ask them which experiment proves that. Now of course, they're not going to admit that they're wrong. They'll waffle at you. and as an auditor, sometimes in my work, um, the auditor's test, a little aside, teaching point here, whenever an auditor encounters somebody who says, oh, yeah, we do this or we do that, the auditor says, show me. Show me the proof that you do this or you do that. And I suppose the modern version of this was, would be, well, let's Google that. So if somebody says there's, a, there's an experiment that proves God doesn't exist, okay. Let's get the phone out and look that up on Google and see if we can find it. And I suspect there will be more waffle and more as they try and get out of it. Okay, I'm on the final page now. When I sent Jacko my draft, he said, it's too short, your sermon, so you can blame him. So in conclusion, Psalm 139 reminds us how complete God's knowledge is of us, how intimate and detailed his view of us. David knew this, but even King David's knowledge of God was partial and was obscured by his sin, but still he knew enough to praise God. And we are more blessed than David. We know far more. We know that Jesus has become human and died for our sins on the cross, bridging the gap between us and God and God has sent His Holy Spirit to live in us. And now God's revelation in Scripture is complete, far more exists than was available in David's time. And we can interpret it with the mind and example of Christ and the words of Christ. And we've heard that some embrace science while rejecting God's revelation and some Re, uh, reject God's revelation, sorry, embrace God's revelation while rejecting science. But we have the believer's freedom. We can have both. It's not either or. The saved Christian has nothing to fear in studying God's creation. We may be puzzled, dumbfounded even by creation, by its strangeness and complexity, but we praise God for it anyway. And now that we are Saved by Jesus, we are children of God, sisters and brothers. There are no go-betweens anymore, no kings or priests to intercede us for us. Um, not that we reject setting aside people to serve God and to lead us, but of course we have power and knowledge of the kind David could never have dreamed of. Okay, each. I suspect every one of us in here has got a mobile phone. Uh, and we, we live in a country that God, uh, that, sorry, that David didn't know existed. He would have had no idea this place existed, not a chance. But we don't need kings or priests anymore because we have Jesus himself to intercede with us with God. And each one is a major character now in our story. We are co-workers with God and what we think and do and say can advance his kingdom. Now we can and do know God even better than the King. So I'd just like to pray the final two verses of Psalm 139. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church, North Adelaide. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church or to donate to the work of City Light Church North Adelaide, visit us at citylight.church northadelaide.